about a hundred years ago. It's a Christian man. We don't know his last name. His first name is George. Went to his pastor after the sermon with a heavy burden on his heart. He worked as a shipbuilder. And in shipping at that time, again, this is about a hundred years ago, uh, you use copper nails to assemble ships. You're not large ships. You're small boats. And you use copper because, obviously, they don't rust. So, so if you put your boat in the water with iron nails, it's going to fall apart as soon as all the nails rust. So he enjoyed his work so much that he began building a boat at home. And it's almost kind of a hobby as well as a vocation for him. And as a Christian, he had been witnessing to his boss. He, he'd been telling him, his boss was not a believer, telling him how much he needed Jesus and how much he needed to repent from his sins, receive forgiveness. And he had been inviting him to church because he wanted to have his boss hear the gospel preached, and he wanted the word of God to lead this man to repentance. So he had been working very hard to try to help this man come to know the Lord. But at the same time, he had been stealing copper nails for his boat that he was building at home from his boss. And he justified it by saying, you know what, I don't get paid enough, and... My boss has so many of these, he's never going to miss them. So I'm taking what should be mine anyway, and I'm not even hurting someone else. And after listening to the sermon that his pastor preached, he recognized that he was just basically a thief, that he actually needed to pay back what he had taken, and yet he was afraid to go to his boss Because he had been witnessing to him and he said to his pastor, he said, you know what? If I tell him this, if I admit that I'm a thief, he's never going to come to Christ because my testimony would be totally destroyed. So he felt just caught. He felt trapped and he didn't know how to have peace because he felt like he couldn't make the wrong right. And yet at the same time, he was under deep conviction for what he had done. And so this went on for a few weeks. And finally, he went to his pastor and he said, you know what? I settled. I I went to my boss. I told him what I'd done. He, He not only... He had used some of them, so he couldn't just return what he'd taken. But he returned what he still had that he hadn't used, and he paid back what he had wrongfully taken. And so his pastor said, well, how did your boss respond? How did he take that? And the man said, this is what what my boss said to me. He said, George, I always thought that you were a hypocrite. But now, I began to think that there is something in Christianity after all. Any religion that would make a dishonest workman come back and confess that he had been stealing copper nails and offer to settle for them must be worth having. And in actuality, his witnessing was completely ineffective. But what was effective was when he went and made restitution for what he had done wrong. God always has and always will care deeply about justice. That's why Jesus went to the cross for our sins, because he cares about justice. And when we sin, the right thing to do is to repent, and whenever we can, to restore what was lost in whatever way that we can. And that's what we will see in Exodus this morning. So if you were here last week, We saw very specific rules that apply to murder and not just murder, but when violence is done and it's not murder, how does the law thou shalt not kill still apply when two men fight and one injures the other? What happens? How is justice done 
when the law has been broken. And this week, we will see rules that apply more specifically to theft. Not only when the theft is obvious and something has been stolen, but when property has been damaged or lost, and what is fair and what is right, and what does justice look like when God's law has been broken. And my prayer this morning is that God would help us as individuals to recognize where we have been wrong so that we can experience the joy of obedience in Christ. So let's begin in Exodus. And very similar to what I did last week, I want to take a few moments, look at some verses from Exodus, and then go to the New Testament, see how does this truth from Exodus apply to us as believers in the church. And then finally, how does grace apply in an instance of restitution? So to begin with, writing a wrong in ancient Israel, look with me at Exodus chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I'd encourage you, please open one of the ones that are available around you in the sanctuary. Uh, if you have one of the blue Bibles, you can find it on, on page 62, or the, the red Bibles are large print, and you go to page 74. There are a lot of rules here, and I want to encourage you to follow along with me as I read laws about restitution. So Exodus chapter 21, verse 33, read with me. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit, and does not cover it, and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also shall share. Or, if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox, and the dead beast shall be his. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. He shall surely pay. If he has done nothing, then he shall, if he has nothing rather, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. If a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, for any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it. The case of both parties shall come before God, and the one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. 
If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. Like the section on murder, this passage that really describes how to handle taking or damaging your neighbor's property establishes rules for cases even where no one exactly stole something, but property was lost or damaged or an animal was injured or killed. And God describes in each scenario who is responsible to pay for it and how much responsibility they should shoulder. You can imagine someone would say, well, I haven't committed theft. I just started a fire and it was an accident. Understandably, you don't bear the same responsibility for an accident that you do for premeditated theft, but you do still bear responsibility. And so God describes what is just and what is right in each various circumstance. Theft, after the stolen item had been sold, carried a penalty four to five times the value of the item stolen, depending on what was stolen. You may, you may have noticed when they're talking about oxen and sheep, well, an ox demanded five times for being stolen, and a sheep was only four times. You might think, why is that? Why is it different? Well, have you ever tried to move a cow? They're not easy to move. And so if you have managed to pull off an ox heist, there is a higher penalty because your crime was more difficult. Sheep, on the other hand, frequently wander off and they may just happen to end up on your property. And if you fail to return it, Scripture says, if it's still in your possession, you pay double. If you have killed it or sold it, you pay four times the price of that animal. And in each instance, as we saw for murder, God has a passion for justice, not only for the perpetrator of the crime, for the offender, but also for the, the person who is a victim. So there are protections for the offender so that no one is wrongfully convicted of theft and forced to pay for something they did not take. And the person who has lost property or had property damaged is compensated not only for the loss, but also for the crime itself. And so the repayment can be as much as five times as what was taken. Accidental loss or damage cases were sometimes repaid item for item, depending on the responsibility of the person who was at fault. Or in some instances, the loss was shared 50-50. You can think a little bit of how we deal with traffic accidents when we look at things like this, where someone may determine this person was at fault, so their insurance will pay for it. This person was not at fault. And we handle criminal negligence in very similar ways. It's not enough to say, I did not actively take something or damage something. If you are responsible for that, you are still liable to pay it back. In cases where guilt could not be determined, and we saw a few instances like that where something went missing in someone else's possession, an oath was required of the person responsible for the loss to swear that he had been honest. And if he swore that he had been honest, he was not responsible to make restitution. And this is actually one application. You may remember we talked about, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
This is exactly what he's talking about, where there's an instance where an oath is required. And if you take the name of the Lord your God in vain, God says, I will not hold you guiltless if you lie in my name. And so rather than being punished in the context of a court of law, you are guilty before God and God will exact punishment on you for lying. You might wonder what on earth this has to do with the church. And I think that is a good and a healthy question. This is a difficult passage to read because it feels so foreign and so alien to us. And yet in every instance, God's passion for justice shows through both for the accused and for the victim. And while, as I suggested in my introduction, Christians have a responsibility to do what is right, even when it's costly. And I believe this passage of Scripture helps us understand that sometimes it's not just simple repayment. Sometimes you owe more than what you took to make a loss right. When we wrong someone, we need to make it right. And sometimes that means going even beyond our American legal responsibilities. You might say, well, what I did was perfectly legal. That's not the question. Was it right before God is the question. And so I, again, want to look at the teachings of Jesus and show what he expects of his church with this as a background, because this informs what the New Testament teaches about right and wrong in the church. And so I want to encourage you. We've looked at righting a wrong in Israel and in a general principle. It means if you have done something wrong, you make it right by paying back what you've taken. Now, more specifically, how do we handle that in the church? So go with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and I believe the the page number is 810 for the blue Bibles, and in the large print, it's 963. Let me encourage you to turn there so that you can see the words of God in, in the scripture, and read with me what Jesus says should happen within the church when someone has done something wrong. So Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verses 21. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This passage describes the reality That our sins against our brothers and sisters, our sins against even our unbelieving neighbors, hinder our worship when we come to church. Have you ever felt like God doesn't listen to your prayers? It may be the case that he's not listening to your prayers. Jesus says, if your brother has something against you, you need to go and make that right before you come to God in worship. He is very clear That we are unfit to worship God while we have unsettled wrongs. And this is important because I believe sometimes people falsely think that because God has forgiven our sins, that there's no need to make restitution to people. But peace with God 
is never an excuse to cheat your neighbor. Peace with God is never an excuse to cheat your neighbor. God expects you to settle your debt. And in fact, if you do not settle your debt, it shows that it's at least possible that your heart has not truly repented because you're not grieved over your sin. A truly repentant heart is grieved at past sins and longs to be forgiven. And so if you come to God and ask for a cheap sort of forgiveness and you no longer care about how your sin has hurt someone else, it may be that you are not truly repenting because you are not sorrowful. Now, I want to be careful here. I believe very firmly, and we'll see this in just a moment when we look again at Zacchaeus, that coming to God for forgiveness is a source of incredible joy. Christians should not be mournful over past sins, although there are cases where you will never feel completely free because of what God has done in your heart. You may carry a burden like the Apostle Paul, who says, I am the chief of sinners because I persecuted the church. Paul experienced great joy and forgiveness and peace in Christ, and yet for the rest of his life, he always recognized what he had done in his past. There will be a piece of you that remembers what you've done, but... Like Paul, you can use that for the glory of God and say, God has forgiven me for this. And so there is an opportunity for incredible joy. But I don't want to get ahead of myself too much because sometimes we want to experience that joy and we leave someone an injury. And God says that is wrong. So we've looked at righting a wrong in ancient Israel. I've said a brief word from Matthew 5 about how to right a wrong within the church. You go to your brother. You try to settle with him. You make it right. And until you do that, you don't pretend like you can be right with God. Jesus says very clearly, go to your brother first. And now lastly, I want to look at righting a wrong through grace. Righting a wrong through grace. How does grace fit into this picture? Because we believe all of us are sinners before God. None of us can say, you know what? I've kept all Ten Commandments. I'm good. The reality is all of us are guilty. And all of us come to God on the basis of grace because Jesus paid our debt for us. So how does grace interact with restitution? So look with me at Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And this is the scripture reading that we read this morning. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. A very familiar story. Jesus is entering Jericho and and described passing through so 19 verse 1 it says he entered jericho and was passing through and behold there was a man named zacchaeus he was a chief tax collector and was rich and he was seeking to see who jesus was but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was about to pass that way and when jesus came to him came to the place he looked up and said to him zacchaeus Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Now I want to pause for just a second before we finish this passage and remind you that when you come to God through Jesus Christ, you should experience that joy. That joy will enable you to make restitution and to not care about what anyone else says or thinks Because you have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Recognize, Jesus says incredibly difficult things. This is the 19th chapter of Luke. He has said difficult things for 18 chapters. 
Zacchaeus knows him by reputation. He will have heard some of his teachings. And he may have been attracted by some of the miracles. But Zacchaeus does not fit well in Israel. He is described as a tax collector. He is a traitor. He is taking money from Israelites and giving it to Rome. And not only is he taking money to give to Rome, he is taking money to make himself rich. He is hurting his brothers and his sisters who are supposed to be looking for the Messiah and he is selling them out to Rome. If he knows that Jesus is a teacher of Israel, he knows that he's in trouble. And yet he has a hunger to know him. And he has a desire to know him. And when Jesus says, I want to fellowship with you today, he is joyful. I imagine that in his heart there was real tension. There was probably some fear over what Jesus might say to him. And yet his anticipation and faith in the Lord outweighed all of that. And he received him with joy. And now look at what he does. Verse 6. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, everyone else around him, they grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And that was absolutely true. And now notice in verse 8, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. If you notice, in chapter 18, we have the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, If you want peace with God, sell all you have and follow me. And he goes away sad because he loves his possessions more than he desires fellowship with Christ. Zacchaeus is showing the heart of someone who loves God above everything else. And he is demonstrating true repentance. Notice he says, I restore it fourfold. Remember what we read in Exodus? If you steal a sheep and you sell it or kill it, you pay back four times what you took. What Zacchaeus is doing is he is saying, I have wrongfully stolen from some of my fellow Israelites. And I'm not only going to give back what I took, I am going to acknowledge my theft by paying back four times what I took. This is repentance. This says, I am a sinner. I admit that I have sinned. I have sinned before God. And not only does Zacchaeus go to God and ask for forgiveness... As a sign that true repentance has come into his heart. He does what he can to make right all of the wrongs that he has committed as a tax collector. And notice what Jesus says. Verse 9. Today salvation has come to this house. Since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. What's that part about the son of Abraham? I believe what Jesus is saying is to those grumbling people saying he's going to have dinner with a sinner. Jesus is saying, you might look at him as a sinner, but he's a son of Abraham. He is looking for the Messiah and his repentance is genuine and real. And this man has experienced real salvation. Jesus makes it clear That the evidence of salvation is that Zacchaeus was willing to pay back what he had wrongfully taken. And I think it's important to remind you, what Zacchaeus had done was perfectly legal as far as Rome was concerned. He could have shrugged his shoulder and said, you know what? This is the law. I didn't make the law. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. 
But it was wrong as far as God was concerned. And when Jesus changed Zacchaeus' life, the only thing that mattered was that he was right before God. And so he didn't care about his possessions. He cared more about being right with God and his fellow man. And I entitled this point, Writing a Wrong Through Grace, because I want to be very clear on this. We are forgiven before God on the basis of Jesus' shed blood. His blood cleanses us from all sin. But a cleansed sinner will not be content to see someone hurt because of his sin. And so I want to say to you today, if you have wronged someone, you need to make it right. That may look differently today than it did in Jesus' day. Like, like Exodus shows, there are different types of repayment for different types of wrong. And what I want to encourage you to do is if God has burdened your heart today and you think immediately of a specific person that you have wronged or a specific sin in your past that you may need to go back and try to make right, probably the first thing you should do is talk to someone who is wiser than you in the things of God, someone who has experience and wisdom who will help you understand what it means to make it right. Or perhaps God has very clearly told you what to do. And then I want to encourage you, just do it. If God has convicted you today of something that is wrong, I want to urge you to obey him. And now I want to acknowledge there are a few practical questions that, that, that might immediately come up. I've, I've urged you, you might need to go make restitution today. But what do you do if you can't pay back what you owe? What if the debt is too large? What if it seems impossible? And here, I believe the Apostle Paul is an amazing example of what we as a church should do when someone wants to make a wrong right. So the book of Philemon is a tiny little book in the New Testament. It's just a single page. Some of you may remember it. Some of you it may be brand new to. And so let me describe what happens in this book. Philemon is a letter from Paul to Philemon. And Philemon is a wealthy businessman. He has a, a church meeting in his house. And Paul is writing to him because Onesimus is a slave originally from Philemon's household. And he stole from Philemon and he ran away and he met Paul in Rome. When he met Paul, Paul did what Paul always does and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And Onesimus comes to be a believer. And his faith takes deep root in his heart. And what Paul says to him is you need to go settle accounts with Philemon. But bear in mind, Onesimus does not have anything. All that he has, he stole from his employer. So how can he make restitution when he lacks what he needs? The answer is in the little book of Philemon. And I would encourage you to read the whole book today. It's too long for us to read now. But what Paul does is he writes on behalf of Onesimus and he says to Philemon, anything that he owes you, I personally will repay. And as a brother in Christ, he shoulders the burden for what his brother did. And this is, I believe, a very practical application. You may remember the verse from Galatians. I've preached on it before. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Onesimus has a burden that he cannot bear on his own. 
And this is a wrong that he needs to settle and make right. And so what Paul does is he bears the burden with him. So if you have a debt today that you cannot repay, let me encourage you to continue seeking a way to make restoration. Seek a way to make it right. Talk to someone within the church that you trust and see if there's a way that we as a church can perhaps help you make it right. This is what it means for Christians to bear one another's burdens. When we take responsibility for wrongs that we have not committed, and when we help and support each other by helping pay that back, that doesn't make this easy. It takes great humility to do this, but I believe God will honor it and bless it. There's a second scenario that may hinder this kind of restoration. So what if, what if the person you wronged is dead? What if you cannot go and apologize? What if you cannot make restoration because the person you wrong is no longer living? D.L. Moody talked about this. He was a great preacher from a hundred years ago. And he had a woman come to him and confess that she had stolen from an employer when she worked as a housekeeper. She took four bottles of wine. And she said every time she tried to pray, all she could think of was the wine that she had stolen. And she asked Moody, she said, should I, should I just give money to the church? He said, well, you need to make it right with your employer. He said, well, she's dead. So do I give to a church? Moody said, no, don't give to a ministry. God does not want stolen money. Instead, he said, does your boss have any living relatives? And she said, yeah, he's got a son. And so what he told her to do was go to the son and pay him back for what you stole from his dad. And she said that when she did that, she experienced incredible peace, incredible restoration. The biblical principle of restoration has huge ramifications for our culture. This is a sign to an unbelieving world that we have something way better than our stuff. When we experience a peace with God that moves us to make old wrongs right. You might have heard what I said, that, that she felt like she couldn't pray. And you might feel like God always hears your prayers. But let me remind you that biblically, that's actually not true. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 66, verse 18, Psalm 66, verse 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And there are other examples throughout Scripture. Husbands, if you are not right with your wives... First Peter says very clearly, your prayers will be hindered. They will not be effective. God will not answer them. And so I want to stress to you the importance. Some of you maybe have wronged your wives or wives, perhaps you have wronged your husbands. You may need to make restitution to each other so that your prayer lives will be effective and you will experience the sweet fellowship of God. In other words... What I believe the scriptures teach is that if we love our sin, God does not hear us. And if we want a cheap sort of repentance that asks God for forgiveness while we hang on to the things that we have gained through sin, that is not genuine biblical repentance and God will not hear that prayer. Real repentance comes to God and is honest about our fault. And real repentance experiences the joy of forgiveness like Zacchaeus did. And out of that joy goes and settles old wrongs. We cannot seek God and remain in sin. That will never work. 
Moody said this as he talked about that story. He said, many of our prayer meetings are killed by men trying to pray who cannot pray because their lives are not right. Sin builds up a great wall between us and God, even for believers. It hinders our fellowship. And he says, a man may stand high in the community and may be a member of some church in good standing. But the question is, how does he stand in the sight of God? If there is anything wrong in your life, make it right. Very often as I close my messages, I like to urge you to be right with God and perhaps to confess sin or perhaps to commit to to walking in obedience. But this morning, rather than focusing upward towards God, I want you to focus on your neighbors. I want to ask you, are you right with your neighbors? I believe if we as believers and as a church want to be used by God, and I desperately want to be used by God, I want to see people saved. I want to see people grow in obedience. If we want to advance the kingdom of Jesus, we need to right old wrongs. Will you commit today? Some of you may need to make a phone call and apologize and pay back money. Some of you, may need to seek counsel on how to do that. And so let me urge you, will you talk to someone you trust if God has convicted you today? If your heart feels heavy because the Spirit of God is speaking to you, will you commit right now to obeying Him no matter what the cost is? Will you confess your sin and will you make restitution? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, You have been so generous with us, Lord, when when you saw our need, when you saw us in our sin. You sent your own son to die in our place. You did not owe us anything. You are perfect and holy and had not committed any wrong. And yet your generosity overflowed towards us through the blood of Jesus so that we could be forgiven. Lord, I ask that you would give us the faith to rest in that blood, that it is sufficient for all of our sins, that that grace that's so sweet and beautiful would fill us with joy and with forgiveness, that we would know that we are welcomed and accepted before you, that you have come to seek and save those who are lost, that you love the people that no one else loves. And I pray that you would help us to have that assurance, that warmth and acceptance. And I pray that from that basis of being right with you, you would help us be right with one another. Give us the strength to follow through on our commitments, Lord. I ask that no one here who has been convicted would fail to follow through. I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience. And I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who is our perfect example, who perfectly obeyed. I pray this in his name, on his authority. Amen. Let it be so. In Jesus' name.